Start a podcast and we're gonna rank the Beatles. Ranking the Beatles is our show. Welcome, everybody. Oh, yes. yes. A little Dixie Cups mm-hmm. on this fine Sunday. That's right. Slash Monday. That's right. Welcome, <laughs> friends. We are recording across interstellar time and space today. <laughs> just... uh, that's not true. We're just talking to, we have a guest that's in Australia. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 56 of Ranking the Beatles. I am Jonathan. And I'm Julia. Welcome to the show, everybody. How's your week been? Hopefully it's been wonderful. Julia, tell them how your week's been. Um, it's been good. Been pretty good? Yeah, I don't really have any complaints, I don't yeah, think. Not too shabby? No. Had a, uh, I had a walrus, walrus show you this did? past weekend. You did? It's fun. Our guitar player uh, is out of the uh, out of the state for the summer, so we had a friend fill in. Uh, he's a class. He's a amazing violin player. So it was uh, what the Beatles would sound like if George Harrison played violin, um, and also killed it on harmonica. I didn't know Harry could play harmonica. It Absolutely crushed it. it was um, completely bananas. Super fun. Made a whole bunch of songs sound uh, not different, but just it put a whole new light on different parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very very cool. Um, but yeah, things are good over here in Rankin' the Beatles headquarters, and we are glad that you all have joined us for this week's episode. Hello to any new listeners. Hi, friends. And uh, what's up to all of our regular listeners? Hi, friends. <laughs> hey, friends. <laughs> so, super stoked for this week's episode. Um, as I've mentioned before, uh, as we've been progressing with this show and uh, delving ourselves into the online Beatles fan community. We've met some truly awesome people. Uh, today's guest is one of them, and uh, she's also an author. So she has a new book out that we're very excited to talk about. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest for this week, shall I? Oh, before I do that, actually, I'm all over the place. I'm sorry. Uh, today's show is a little bit more boomier than usual. Maybe you might hear a bit more a bit more echo and room sound. Ooh, I don't that's know. a lot. <laughs> Now they do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We had some technical difficulties this afternoon. We're recording in a different room than our usual uh, studio room. So it's my fault. I'm sorry. It's okay. I told you. I told you not to worry about it, honey. Thanks, son. It's okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But long story short, we had to come to the room with the good cell phone, with the good uh, internet reception, the good Wi-Fi. So we could do this uh, successfully. And it's uh, it's a little bit more of a boomy room. So if it doesn't sound like our normal broadcast quality, uh, apologies for that. We will be back to our regularly, regularly scheduled awesomeness next week. Unless Julia kills the iPad again. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't do that. I feel bad. I'm just dragging you under the... All right, move on. Move on. Let's, Let's talk, talk about, about our, our guest for this week. Today. Our guest today is an American scholar based in Brisbane, Australia, whose work focuses on the histories of popular music and youth culture from the 1960s to the 1990s. She's got a master's in communication, culture, and technology from Georgetown University and a PhD in communication from the University of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. I don't know why I said it like that. Pittsburgh. (laughs) Pittsburgh. The Vicksburgs in Pittsburgh. 
Uh, <laughs> don't bring it back to that. Uh, she was also a Fulbright Scholar at the University of Hamburg's Research Center for Contemporary History. She's a senior lecturer in cultural sociology at Griffith University, and her work has been presented in international conferences, symposia, and workshops in Australia, the U.S., the U.K., and Portugal. She's probably smarter than Julia and I combined, because we haven't done nearly half of the stuff that she's done. Probably? Most definitely. Definitely. I was just trying to be nice, because you're really smart. (laughs) Uh, Prior to a life in academia... Uh, she flirted with musical ambitions, first as bassist and backup singer for the Bellingham Washington riot girl band Hussy, uh, then in Portland as indie singer-songwriter Christine Darling. Her latest book is called A Women's History of the Beatles and is the first book to offer a detailed presentation of the band's social and cultural impact as understood through the experiences and lives of women. Drawing on a mix of interviews, archival research, textual analysis, and autoethnography, uh, this scholarly work depicts how the Beatles have profoundly shaped and enriched the lives of women while also re-examining key influential female figures within the group's history. I wrote all that myself. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, Friends, please welcome to the show Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett. Christine, welcome to the show. How are you today? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. So nice to meet both of you. Likewise. We've uh, thoroughly enjoyed our uh, our online communications with you through social media thus far. And also your book. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Super excited Thank to talk you. about that. Yes. Um, before we even get into that, though, how have you been? How's, you know, this is, we feel like we, we still start every show like this. How's the last mm. weird year and a half been for you? You know, I think I've been pretty lucky because when the pandemic hit, I was in the in the throes of writing the book. Mm-hmm. So I was in this Beatles bubble. So the world is chaotic. Nobody knows what the hell is going on. I'm talking about, you know, February, well, March, March, April 2020. Mm-hmm. And I was given research leave starting January 2020. So that whole period from January through June, I was just busy writing the book. So in that way, I felt quite protected in terms of what was going on. I mean, I was greatly concerned, of course, especially for my family in the States mm-hmm. and Um, My husband's British, so we're both far away from our families and things in England and in the U.S., as I'm sure you know, were way worse than Mm -hmm. here in Australia. Mm -hmm. So there was that constant feeling of stress um, around all of that, but I felt so lucky that I was working on this project that meant so much to me. And that I could just lose myself in the Beatles, yeah. essentially. And this this whole story of, of women connecting to the Beatles, which for me, as someone who has been a Beatles fan since I was probably five or six years old, it I just couldn't have asked for a better project as an academic to work on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a dream come true. And so I really did pour all my energy into that I mean obviously there's the whole research that goes into it and all the interviews that I did which were fun and I really felt even though um, many of the women I interviewed live in other countries and living in Australia and being American I do sometimes feel quite far removed from many people I know for sure but it was um, 
it was such a blessing to feel so connected with this lovely community of Beatles people. Mm-hmm. And it's only grown since the book's come out. I felt so connected, not just with the women I interviewed for the book, but all the people I've met, like you two, mm-hmm. uh, all mine first, yeah. usually. Yes. Uh, but it's it's been such a happy place to be in, considering the chaos and the continuing story of what's going on right now. And we're all just trying to get through to the next better phase of things. For sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's I, I feel like I was very lucky mm-hmm. uh, during that whole time that I could just hunker down and I needed to. I had to. I think my deadline was July 1st last year. So wow. the manuscript had to get done. Um I wanted it, of course, to be the best that it could be. And so, yeah. Uh, And I just lived in that Beatles world. I would listen to the music uh, when I wasn't writing. And uh, my husband is a Beatles fan, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe not to the level of intensity that I am, but (laughs) he, he really does love the Beatles too and we actually met here in Brisbane and we met I think the day before John Lennon's birthday and that was nice a big deal to both of us but I think um he's the one who brought it up actually mm-hmm. so you're um, like oh you know that <laughs> I <Yeah>. like you <laughs> like, oh you party okay <laughs> exactly exactly so um yeah, so that's I, I'm doing fine. I'm I'm doing well. Uh, things are pretty good right now. So, good. Yeah. So I, in March, you were settling into write. Like you had already done all of your research, and like March to July was that like let's put it all together. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. I had been doing research kind of on and off from late 2016. I actually had a trip to the UK where I was doing research in London and Liverpool. And um, then I had to take a break for a bit and work on some other projects. And then I came back to it with more intensity and doing more interviews in 2018. And then the writing really got going, I think, January of 2020. That's an amazing amount of research. I mean, I can tell just by reading the book, you you spoke to so many different women. I'm like, I was having a hard time keeping it straight. I'm like, oh wait, this person. Wait, did they come back later? Uh, Yeah, we talked to them. You talked to them earlier when now we're talking about them again and like connecting all of their stories. It was. It's absolutely incredible. It's such a, a range of experiences from women that are all bits and pieces are similar, but so very different at the same time. It's wonderful. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to have something out there because I didn't see it. I didn't see a book that really foregrounded so many different women's voices and from different generations. There are definitely excellent books out there that are memoirs, whether we're talking about the ones written by Cynthia Lennon and Patty Boyd to the ones written by first generation Beatlemaniacs. There are definitely some great ones out there. I interviewed a few of those women. I referenced their books in mine, but I wanted to really especially bring out those stories from people from my generation, the second generation of fans, and also even younger fans that are out there, which mm-hmm. now it's been thrilling to see all these much younger 
Beatles fans and a lot of young women coming to the fore with podcasts and things like that. Um, but there wasn't there wasn't a cultural history of the Beatles like that. Yeah. And obviously being a female fan and all my life wanting to be so engaged with the Beatles story on my own terms, um, I knew that I wasn't the only one. There were a lot of women out there who had similar stories to tell. I, I found myself while I was while I was reading it, kind of thinking back on my own journey with Beatle fandom and for the longest time, because I'm, I'm part of that like third generation of like, you know, born in 1981. Uh, I was already into them in like the early like pre-anthology, uh, but that was kind of like that was just like Christmas all year long for me was when the anthology came out. Um, but yeah. for the longest time, I had like no peers that were into the Beatles that I could share this with, um, be it boy or girl. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times like in school when like I would wear a Beatles shirt, like some kid would like punch me and call me gay. You know, like the Beatles are gay. It was like, okay. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it was always kind of, I always felt like a fish out of water. And the few people that I would meet that were Beatle fans were always women or girls. I, I mentioned it a long time ago. One of like the first real like Beatle fan friends I ever had was like my third grade math teacher who was like a huge mm. Beatles fan and like would bring me her records and let me borrow them. And like, that was super cool. Um, but it, you know, now seeing, you know, the wonderful community that's built around Beatle fandom. Um, mm. And it's not just people my age or people older. Uh, it's, you know, it's people younger than us, um, but everybody can, you know, it's, it's this whole huge kind of uh, amalgamation of um, amalgamation of age groups that all have this common thing that we can all talk about and have a great time, you know, communicating about. And it's like a really nice thing to have kind of fallen into, especially in the last year and a half, like, mm. like you were kind of wrapped in your bubble of Beatle research. And I was kind of like, we were kind of like diving into this world of like, oh man, there, there really are people like this, you know, like they don't just yeah. exist from afar. It's wonderful. And, and you know, there's, and there's one uh, specific line, especially in the book, uh, towards the end that really caught my attention that we talked about, or Julie and I talked about earlier. Um, and I'll quote it real quick where you said, I wanted to not only momentarily shift the vantage point of Beatles history, but also shift the understanding of women's participation within it, that it has been proactive rather than reactive. And that kind of was a moment where I was like, oh my God, yes. Because every documentary is like, oh, the girls were screaming. The seats were covered in pee. Uh, you know, it was, and, and, and then Johnny picked up a guitar. And that's all it ever is. Like my story of being a, mu- a guy who like saw the Beatles and then like wanted to be a musician. There's a million people like me. Like no one needs to hear that anymore. But there's so many stories that are not told. And I think that's where your book truly, it, you know, truly succeeds. Not that my approval is needed or warranted, <laughs> but well, just my own opinion. Well, <laughs> well, look, I'm just I'm happy that people like it. That they're responding to it positively that they feel that it it is sharing something new Mm -hmm. and new stories I mean for me the stories that really touched me when I heard them were the ones from first generation fans who were talking about the Beatles as this point of access into the world yeah Mm -hmm. that the Beatles, some, everything about the Beatles, whether it was their personalities, the individual personalities, their style, and of course the music, 
there was something about them collectively and individually that resonated with young women and girls in different ways that symbolized freedom mm-hmm. and and access into this really fun adult world that they hadn't imagined until that point. And I do love the story that this woman, Kate, shared with me, where she talks about having to always be responsible for her younger siblings, always babysitting. She was saving all her money so she could buy these copies of the Beatles boots that for her, they they really became the symbol of wanting to get out there in the world, you mm-hmm. know, and be part of what was going on. And that was so astounding to me because I thought, yes, I, I remember feeling that way, connecting to the Beatles in my generation in my own way, that everything I saw about them not only fascinated me, but it made me excited to go out there in the world when I was a little bit older and and participate in things. Maybe I would play music, which I ended up doing for a little while, Mm -hmm. or, you know, maybe I would travel around the world a lot, which I did, you know, and I ended up becoming an expat here in Australia. And Yeah, I think the Beatles just became such role models for women in the 60s when it was a little bit harder to see any role models like that anyway, let alone women. There weren't really women who were doing the kinds of things that the Beatles were doing because the Beatles were so singular anyway. Yeah. You know, that's why everyone wanted to be like them or, you know, have some access to them because there were so few people in the public world you know in entertainment show business whatever you want to call it but there were so few younger adults out there who were just being themselves Mm -hmm. you know having fun being creative doing what they wanted to do being a little bit irreverent and how fun was that everyone wanted a part of that and I think the focus, um, like you said, Jonathan, was so much on that one narrative of, oh, the moment all these American boys saw them on the Ed Sullivan show, they started a band, Mm -hmm. they grew their hair out, you know, (laughs) and that's great. I love that story. I love those stories. But what about the girls who wanted to form bands? What about Mm -hmm. the girls who decided they wanted to fly to London to have this adventure and maybe meet the Beatles while they were living there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love those sorts of stories, and I've always loved those sorts of stories. And the thing is, uh, women who I've met throughout my life, just randomly, I would meet these women who were maybe baby boomers, maybe a little bit younger, but there would always be some sort of Beatles story that they wanted to share with me. And I'll never forget when I was a grad student at Georgetown, so I was living in D.C., I met at one point this very, um, very successful attorney, um, very high-powered position in D.C., And she told me that she was in the audience of the Ed Sullivan show, the first performance. And that was a formative, defining experience in her life. Mm -hmm. And a few years later, I think she said something like her mother had remarried and she spent time in London in the swinging 60s. You know, it was like 1966 or 67. And for her, that was still, she talked about it with such excitement and enthusiasm that this was this pivotal moment in her young life and so those were I guess you know and that was probably like 2000 
too when I heard that story when I met that person Mm -hmm. but I guess obviously that stayed with me thinking about those sorts of experiences and wanting to interview women uh, about those sorts of things you know how had the Beatles become such an important aspect of their lives or had been a touchstone for further adventures and you know things that they really wanted to do yeah like I was so impressed with all the women that started or I should say girls because they were so young that started the fan clubs and would just you know very ambitiously connect with um george's mom and sister-in-law just like write to them and be like hi i'm doing a newsletter do you want to write a column and they were like okay <laughs> i mean like i know the audacity is amazing i love it just like out of nowhere let's just see if they will the worst thing they can do is say no right and then they ended up doing it and they formed this connection a- across the world you know it's so amazing and they they took that confidence and knowledge and everything they learned you know with these fan clubs how to organize and you know do all these things into the rest of their lives it's like amazing skills to learn at 14 15 you know around that age it's incredible yeah absolutely wild exactly i i love those stories that these girls had the moxie didn't they they just wanted to insert themselves into the Beatles story and be part of something that at that time if we're talking about the height of Beatlemania was the biggest story in the world in many respects at least in the non-political you know more sort of um, cultural history that we think of when we think of that time it was such an important thing that was going on that Everyone around the world was so excited about the Beatles. Can you imagine being part of something, even if you're a fan club president or secretary, that you are part of this major event that's going on in the world? And I think adolescent girls, teenage girls often, and even later, you know, even in the 70s, 80s, 90s, what have you, didn't always necessarily feel in the center of what was going on. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's phenomenal when you think of it in that way that all the way back these many years ago, girls decided, yeah, this is super exciting. I'm going to be a part of it. And they were central to the Beatles story in a way that a lot of other pop phenomena, you just you don't have that happening. Yeah. And I think that's one of the few points in history where it is so evident that girls and young women are at the core of what's going on. Mm-hmm. I have to wonder to what extent um, the fan involvement in Beatle, in Beatles fan clubs created kind of a blueprint for fandom going forward. Cause I don't really know of any examples pre Beatles of fan clubs that were as interactive as fan driven and as fan serviced maybe as the Beatles were now I I could be missing one, but like, I can't think of anything I've ever read or, or heard of. So I wondered to some extent, like how much do these girls create the blueprint for what fandoms are now? Yeah, I do think so. Like you, I can't think of something comparable with say Frank Sinatra or Elvis Presley. Right. There, it, it just doesn't have that same level of organization, yeah. intensity. And it's something that goes back to the Liverpool days where 
uh, I think Mark Lewison writes about it so well, where the girls were acquaintances of the Beatles and they would be at all the shows at the Cavern and elsewhere. And Paul McCartney did approach these girls to ask them if they would be interested in doing something like that. Mm -hmm. And of course they said yes. And then other women got involved. And that's why I love those early stories in Liverpool where you see the Beatles totally pay attention to their female fans. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's a mercenary thing at all. I think there's a genuine interest and wow, you know, these girls are following us. They're really into our music who are they? Mm -hmm. They would actually go and and chat with them and showed interest in them, Uh, not just in a transactional way, but in a really genuine, friendly, community-oriented way. And I guess as someone who's been a part of music scenes as well, I really got that from reading that history and doing the research that I know whether I've played in bands or been more of the fan or been both, you Mm -hmm. know, there is that interest in wanting to know who's around, you know, who's coming to see your show. uh, Who are these people you're seeing all the time and you run into them down the street, Mm -hmm. you know, before a gig or something. And it's that camaraderie that's so strong. And I think in many ways, the things that I would read, certainly like Lewison's account and some others, the girls would would be there and they would be talked about. But I think just in passing, when you look at Beatles documentaries or <clears throat> there are some sources that seem to just ig- kind of ignore or don't pay attention to that side of the story, that mm-hmm. girls were really such strong proponents and were really proactive in helping the Beatles become who they became. Yeah. And, you know, from a local act to a national sensation and then eventually into this full-blown international phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's always very much, I feel like it's always very much passed off as like, oh, girls thought they were very cute. So they went to their shows and screamed a bunch. And that's really all you get. That's sort of like the end of the story. And it's like, well, who are they? And like, why are they connecting on such a high level with this band? Like, let's be clear. They're totally cute. Like, we all know they're cute. Oh, yeah. But that's like musicians. Cute musicians are a dime a dozen. I know, right. I'm like, okay, sure. That's easy. But where? why are they having this like such high level of connection with these people and their music? Like, there's something more there. There has to be more. And you dug into it. You found it, you know, or a lot of it. Probably not all of it because there's millions of fans, but there's oh, quite a lot of it so in your book. Yeah. It's it's more than just like, oh, my God, they're so cute. I mean, that was, you know, that was part of it. But it's more than that. It's part of it for sure. And I think that shouldn't be put down. I think that's it's part of the enjoyment mm-hmm. for girls, right? You know, straight girls anyway. It's like, ooh, sure. you know. <laughs> Or, or by girls, you know, like, yes, you know, that I'm totally, you know, a Paul girl or a John girl, George girl, Ringo girl. That was part of the fun, for sure. And so I'm also, I get quite prickly when people put that down, you know, that that's a way to negate women's experiences with the Beatles, because 
you know, we can argue it gives women another level in which to enjoy mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Beatles. Right. Really. Like, I'm fairly certain all the guys in college that had Britney Spears posters on their walls are not because they appreciate the depth of her lyrics. <laughs> right? So, like, I mean, she's, she, she wasn't a girl, but she was not yet a woman either. That's pretty I'm deep. Like, let's climb down off our high horses. Sex right. appeal is part of it. It's fine. We all know what we're doing here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, from the very start, and I know it's been talked about a lot, the influence of the girl group lyrics mm-hmm. and songs on the Beatles. And we know that they covered quite a few of those songs by the Shirelles and so on. Um, and this is something I'd lo- like to talk about too when we get into the song. But I think there is that aspect of vulnerability about a lot of the Lennon and McCartney songs, and especially the ones that Lennon sings lead, you know, so we think of them as John songs. Mm-hmm. Um, there, There's that real vulnerability that I think women uh, hear that, and it doesn't come through in a lot of other rock bands, but it definitely comes through in the Beatles. I mean, later on, we get somebody like Elliot Smith, where it's that same level of like, ooh, you know, I hear those songs and my heart is breaking, or I can really feel the emotion coming through in his uh, delivery, the way he sings those lyrics and the lyrics themselves. But thinking about a song like I Don't Want to Spoil the Party, hearing that for the first time as a little girl, I think that was the first time I heard Um, a man or a young man singing to me uh, where there was that that sense of wow he seems really sad or Mm -hmm. there's there's something so vulnerable and I've I've never heard a song like that or I've never heard a guy sing like that or do guys really feel those things you know when you're a little girl and you're just surrounded by these these boys on the playground who are you know doing whatever you know pulling your hair chasing you around (laughs) pulling your hair being you know cheeky and everything i want to um i want to throw this out now because i worry if i try to come back to it in 10 minutes i'm gonna forget about it um you were talking about uh you know their their covers of the shirelles uh the cookies you know girl groups Mm -hmm. um and especially you know john usually is handling the bulk of of that material um, yeah. And I look at kind of a, and I, I say this especially because I've been planning a couple episodes um, involving those songs and this song today. And yeah. there's kind of a through line on some of these songs, you know, um, where I think to some extent, John allows himself to be vulnerable on those songs in ways that he doesn't allow himself to do in real life. Some or like mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. in just general life. Um, he's always kind of putting on that, like, tough air of like the tough guy. Um, but, yeah. and I think, you know, when, when they're doing the girl group songs, they don't, and they're not doing full albums of all their own material. He doesn't necessarily have the opportunity to put his vulnerability into his own material, but especially once you get to like hard days night with I'll cry instead. Um, mm-hmm. And then into the rubber soul album where you've got um, I'm a loser, no reply. This song, he's really putting, like some feelings out there that are not just like boy met, you know, boy met girl, girl left boy, boy sad. Like, (laughs) 
Right. He's like getting into right. like specifics. And I'm really perplexed as to why he calls this song a very personal song. Cause like, mm-hmm. what don't we know about this? Cause like, well, we know he's married. We know he is not faithful. And we know that there were you know women that he was more involved with than just like one night stands. Um, but who is this about? What's that situation? You know, like, yeah. He's really putting some actual emotional heft into it, I think, and letting himself be vulnerable on these kind of songs in ways that he wasn't able to do on Lennon McCartney originals on the first few albums. Cause maybe he just wasn't there emotionally or mentally or prepared mm-hmm. for it. Or maybe he just wasn't living those experiences yet. Um, yeah. I often think, you know, when I, th- when I listen to him on the first couple records and I hear something like Anna or uh, I guess this boy is maybe an early example of this kind of thing too. Um, mm-hmm. But I I sometimes wonder like when he sings something where you just hear like the sadness in his voice on a track like Anna, um, you know, wh- what loss is he tapping into to really deliver that gut punch vocal on something? You know, is it something mm-hmm. about his mother? Is it another relationship that went wrong? I mean, there's so many la- layers of that that I don't think we quite grasp yet or no we may never um but yeah i think this is this one in particular is one that i'm like really puzzled as to like why is this so personal then interesting (laughs) yeah it is a bit of a mystery yeah i think we'll never know right it's fascinating (laughs) to think about for sure well why don't we uh why don't we get into this week's song then i guess as good a time as any since we've already started talking about it let's do it all right, so coming in at number 161, I can't believe we're at 161. Oh my gosh. Is <laughs> I Don't Want to Spoil the Party. I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. I would hate my disappointment to show. There's nothing for me here, so I will. If she turns up while I'm gone, please let me know I've had a drink or two and I don't care There's no fun in what I do when she's not there I wonder what went wrong I've waited far too long I think I'll take a walk and look for her Written sometime during the band's 1964 August to September North American tour I Don't Want to Spoil the Party was primarily written by John, with some assistance from Paul, and intended to be Ringo's vocal vehicle for the band's upcoming fourth album. Country and Western stylings were always a favorite of Ringo's, as we've noted in a few previous episodes, so in crafting a tune form, writing in a genre he loved seemed a wise move. At some point, though, John decided to take the vocal himself. Uh, He would go on in a 1974 interview to call this song lyrically very personal, so a trade-off was made. John usually sung lead on their cover of Carl Perkins' Honey Don't, so in recording it uh, for the album, he gave the vocal to Ringo instead and kept I Don't Want to Spoil the Party for himself. It was recorded on September 29, 1964, in 19 live full band takes, with take, take 19 being the final release take. It was released on December 6th in the UK on Beatles for Sale and in the US released in February of 65 as the B-side of Eight Days a Week and then featured on the June 65 album Beatles 6. Surprisingly, this track was never performed live by the band, either on tour or on a BBC session, which it seems ripe for a BBC session. 
uh, and was never performed live by any of the solo Beatles. Now, in 1989, Roseanne Cash scored a number one hit with a cover of this song, uh, marking the only time a Lennon-McCartney tune has ever topped the country charts. So, why do I have this at number 161? So I think there's really a lot to love on this song. Uh, I think it's really interesting and rare that John ever does his own harmonies on a track because he and Paul obviously harmonize super well. So it's interesting that it's John double tracking his own harmony here. Um, and he's you know singing the main melody line uh, and it's unusual for the harmony to be a lower part, uh, which is kind of just an interesting compositional move. Um, and I love the three part harmonies that they do come in with when they do the ooze in the middle of the line. Um, George really enjoying doing his country picking thing on this song. Maybe does it a bit too much for my own personal liking. Uh, sometimes it seems like he falls victim to the whole kind of like riff in between every lyric move that Paul famously shoots down during Hey Jude. Um, that said, though, his solo is absolutely perfect. Uh, I think it's really interesting. There's no real chorus on the track, uh, but they're so good at crafting melodies and parts that are still hooky and memorable. Uh, where the real magic happens for me is in the bridge. The vocal goes up high. Paul joins in on the harmony. And I love how they extend the vocal syllables on the I still love her. And Ringo switches his drum pattern to like a Bo Diddley beat. It's really imaginative change that gives a lot of weight to that section of the song. Um, and as I kind of said earlier, uh, it's really interesting that over the first few years of Beatlemania, John comes across as the confident alpha male. Uh, and that kind of makes it, uh, makes it noted uh, on the first three records where he's just kind of like the dude in charge. He's the leader. And knowing his story in hindsight, it makes sense that his songs on Beatles for Sale are coming from a place of real self-confidence issues, because this is kind of when Beatlemania starts to become a bit too much for John. Um, I'm a loser, no reply, and this one especially. Uh, with him saying, you know, his life, you know, when, with him saying that this is real personal to him, I, I already said all this. <laughs> That's what I said before. <laughs> I didn't realize I wrote, I forgot I wrote all this down. That's okay. Uh, so I'll skip all that. Uh <laughs> But I think the only real reason it lands here at 161 for me is that we're starting to hit songs that I truly love and I and that truly fascinate me. And I think this is one song that I truly like. I don't think mm -hmm. I love it. I think I like it. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm putting it here, though. Interesting. So that's my two cents. Uh, I throw, uh, throw it over to you. Christine, what do you think? Can I call you okay. Dr. Christine? Well, what do you prefer? Dr. Feldman Barrett? Do you prefer Dr. Dr. Feldman Barrett? Dr. Christine? <laughs> It's all good. Doc. It's all fine. Doc, Christina's, I throw it to you. Christina's my favorite. Okay, um, awesome. But I won't shoot you down for calling me doctor. That's great. Um, uh, yeah, you know what's so interesting? When I was doing a little research on the song myself, as I would given my profession, right? I had to start digging deeper because, as I said, this was probably one of the first Beatles songs I heard and really liked i would say at the time that i heard this we had the capital single from 1965 and eight days a week as a little girl was my absolute favorite beatles song so mm -hmm. of course i was playing that over and over at some point i flipped to the b-side and listened to this song and again uh, as i mentioned before i was struck by the sadness or melancholy of it and I didn't realize that a band that could do a song like Eight Days a Week could also do a song like this. And I just loved everything about it. I did love the melancholy aspect of it. I love the twanginess of it. And it's so interesting because when I read about Beatles for Sale, 
it's often talked about as an album that's not really loved. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a good Beatles album, but it's not a great Beatles album. It kind of echoes what you were saying, Jonathan. You know, I like the song, but I don't love it. And I think Beatles for Sale and including I Don't Want to Spoil the Party, it's one of those albums and songs that's kind of pushed to the side a little bit. People think, oh, yeah, it's good, but... I'm a loser is better or mm-hmm. no reply is better, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't realize that Roseanne Cash had covered it and been so successful with it. I read that that was actually her last number one mm-hmm. on the country charts. because I didn't hear this song as being a country song, a -hmm. country-ish Beatles song. Of course, songs like Act Naturally, the Buck Owens cover, and um, even something later like Don't Pass Me By, the Ringo Mm -hmm. songs, I would think of those more as the country Beatles songs. But this one, to me, it sounded more... I mean, I guess later when I had more experience listening to things like The Birds and Bob Dylan, I would slot that more into kind of a folky kind of song or something similar to um, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. I would put Mm. that in a similar category, even though I prefer uh, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away to this. Mm -hmm. But I I do like this song enough that when I was playing music in Portland in the late 90s, there was a John Lennon tribute night that was organized by a friend of mine. And I performed three songs uh, that night, and this was one of them. I also performed Kiss, Kiss, Kiss by Yoko, which was great fun. That was great fun. I'm telling you, I never got so many compliments for my performance (laughs) during that whole stint as an indie rock girl as when I sang that song. People went nuts. That's awesome. I couldn't believe it. It was really fun. But I I played... um, I played I Don't Want to Spoil the Party and Polythene Pam. Those were the songs that I played. And the funny thing, during that time I lived in Portland, which had a great music scene, I had so much fun, there was this whole thing going on where there were lots of tribute bands. Mm -hmm. There were so many tribute bands between, say, 1999 and 2001, which is also when I moved away to start my um, post-grad or grad school studies. But um, there was a Velvet Underground tribute band called Foggy Notion. (laughs) There was another one all about the kinks called the Young Edwardians. And (laughs) there was even a Guided by Voices tribute band called Giant Bug Village. So they weren't all (laughs) 60s bands. There was that one as well. And so I have to tell you, this is crazy. I kept um, journals. Oh, wow. I I was never a blogger, but... I'm so grateful that throughout my 20s, I kept journals. Mm -hmm. And guess what? I had totally forgotten about this, but I had wanted, during that time, I thought, you know what? I want to do a one-woman Beatles tribute with my little Rickenbacker. I'm going to do it. I never did it, unfortunately, but (laughs) I I wrote about it in my journal, 
And what I was going to do is I was going to have a set that covered songs from 63 to 66, and I'd play on my uh, Rickenbacker uh, 320, right, which looks a lot like the 325 Mm -hmm. that Lennon played. Uh, And I was going to do all those early Beatles songs then, and I would be dressed really mod and, you know, probably like a little skinny tie and a black mini skirt or something like that. And then I was going to do the psychedelic to late Beatles songs and play on my acoustic and then, you know, hippie out and that sort of thing. Um, But I have to tell you that when I looked to see what my supposed set lists were going to be, it's kind of far out. So I not, you know, I haven't done a ranking, Jonathan, like you and Julia have done. But I do have my 64 to 66, uh, really it's 63 to 66, but the set list was I Want to Hold Your Hand, Misery, Not a Second Time, All My Loving, Babies in Black, which I actually did cover sometimes uh, more often than I Don't Want to Spoil the Party, I did play Babies in Black, Eight Days a Week, and I Don't Want to Spoil the Party is included as well. Um, I'm looking through you. I'm only sleeping the night before. She said, she said, things we said today. And ending that set with you like me too much, which is a big surprise to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a set. That's a set. That is a set. That's amazing. So I just can't believe that. That was such a little find. And this is an exclusive, you guys, That's to your amazing. podcast because I haven't shared this with anyone before. But I, when I found that, I said, oh, my God, I don't want to spoil the party is on that list. That's so, so funny. obviously, I like it enough that I would have included that in this, you know, um, one woman Beatles tribute. I think I was going to call it Beat Girl. I was going to be. I love it. That's amazing. That's so cool. How fun. I love that you surprised yourself by including you like me too much. (laughs) Like how funny when we look back on our 20 something selves and just like, what was I thinking? (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, I I think I learned how to play the guitar really uh, through a Beatles, easy Beatles songbook. And so I have to say, I think some of my choices were based on the ones that I found easy and fun to play. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably part of what was going on too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's so good. That's a good set though. Like, I would enjoy that. I'm sitting there taking mental notes for walrus shows. I'm like, yeah, we should add that into the set. (laughs) We just started doing uh, Misery a few weeks ago. I really enjoy playing Misery. As simple as it is, it's so fun to sing that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's great. And I heard, I don't think I heard the whole podcast with Joe Wisby. I'll have Mm -hmm. to go back and listen to the whole thing. But I know you talked with him about that song. Mm -hmm. And um, again, you know, even in the 60s, the Beatles were always thinking about the girls, you know, in all different ways, in great ways. And one way was that oftentimes when they were writing these songs, they were thinking about female artists who could uh, perform them. So something like Misery or later on Yesterday, Paul McCartney was thinking of Marianne Faithful as having the perfect voice for that type of song and that kind of melancholy delivery. Uh, But even later on with let it be he was thinking about aretha franklin Mm -hmm. and it just makes me think about how i was always so willing to embrace the beatles as my own in terms of even 
being this indie girl musician who's just, you know, having fun and didn't know. I mean, I, pro- I, I was pretty sure I was never going to be professionally successful with music, but I was just having fun with it. And the Beatles definitely needed to be a part of that in some way, um, whether it was just doing a few covers here and there. But I think women performers and obviously very successful women performers and musicians have always found a way to kind of slip into those Beatles songs and make them their own, whether we're talking about Roseanne Cash with this particular song. But, you know, I love the Breeders version of Happiness is a Warm Gun. Probably my most favorite is Susie and the Banshees, Dear Prudence. Mm -hmm. And that is really kind of nifty the what she does to that song that it really can be this song about um a woman singing to her female friend you know because it shows that john uh was concerned about prudence in rishikesh right he was concerned for her as a friend and the beatles could always address women not just as romantic partners or love objects but as fully formed human beings as they should (laughs) you know But, but we don't But we don't, you know, we don't see that all the time in rock music. Mm -hmm. And for the Beatles to be the rock band of all rock bands and to to do that, I think, to me, that's a big reason, I think, for why they resonate with me as a woman and uh, with many women out there, you know, that they can really relate to so many aspects of the Beatles lyrics and that they don't feel excluded from that kind of musical conversation. For sure. Do you do you think that your history as a musician gave you a leg up in writing the book and the perspective you could kind of take from being both a fan and musician? I mean, it would have to. I think that would influence my perspective, even though obviously most of the women I interviewed were not musicians. Mm. I did interview some, as you know, from chapter four, that's totally focused on, for instance, the bands that formed in the sixties, the all girl bands. But yeah, I mean, there were certain things maybe that if I hadn't been a musician, I maybe wouldn't have thought about quite as much, Mm -hmm. but Certainly, I think anyone who's really invested in the Beatles and who wanted to do the research could have gone there. Yeah. I mean, I probably could have written more about the instruments and the importance of, you know, having the Vox amps and <laughs> the Rickenbackers and that creating certain sounds. But again, I'm not a musicologist and right. I'm not, to be honest, I'm not really a gearhead when it comes to. I, I was always pretty pathetic when it came to even just <laughs> tuning my guitar. It's like, here, somebody Help do this me. for me, you know? <laughs> I, was, I was not, but I always, you know, my favorite part of playing music, I think, had to be in between the sets, playing with my friends' bands, and we would nerd out and talk about things like the Beatles yeah. or talk about <laughs> Rick and Bockers or talk about all the different bands that we loved. And so it's kind of no wonder I ended up doing what I'm doing Mm -hmm. Um, because even when I was playing music as Christine Darling, I would write songs about Roger McGuinn. I wrote a song about Marianne Faithful. I wrote a song about pavement. You know, I was was always sort of wanting to connect with those stories Mm -hmm. of the music um, more than I was 
a really great, you know, songwriter or um, musician per se, but it, it certainly informs, you know, yeah, the work that I do because even beyond this book, everything that I've written academically has to do with the history of youth culture and popular music. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it definitely led me to where I am now. For sure. For sure. Julia, how are you feeling on this one this week? Um, I feel like um, on my first listen, I was like, this is pretty melodramatic. Um, it's a, There's a lot going on here. Like, okay, you got stood up. Uh, sorry, Mr. Famous Rockstar. Like, welcome to the life of commoners. <laughs> this happens to us all the time. Have a drink. Enjoy the party. Like, <laughs> maybe you'll meet someone else. You'll be fine. You're John Lennon. You're okay. <laughs> but as I think, that's my first like gut reaction of like, oh, okay, sad rock star guy. Don't feel that bad for you. But as I listen to it more, I I really appreciate how good they are about simply putting the human experience that and you kind of touched on this before like how easy it is for people to connect to regardless of whether you're a man or a woman or wherever you fall on the spectrum um yeah 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 like it's it's human experience it's not men's experience it's not women's experience right. it's human experience like who hasn't gone to a party and hoping to see someone that they're really excited about and that person isn't there and just being like well okay I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was. I really wanted to. I had all these things I was going to talk to them about, and I was really excited to see them, and you know, like the possibility of what tonight could be. And yeah. now that's not going to happen. And I really don't care about this party anymore. And I just want to go home and put on my soft clothes. <laughs> <laughs> get my yeah. get my pint of Hagen Dazs and yep, just go just to town. Put on my <laughs> soft clothes, get some ice cream, and watch some really bad television. <laughs> so I, you know, and they're they they're they've always been so good at just sort of putting the human experience into these really catchy songs that so many people can just connect with and be like, oh, man, I feel that (laughs) because that's happened to me or I've done that. And like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore because I'm the the bad person in this story. (laughs) So, yeah, and I really like it. And I think the song itself, like minus the lyrics, I think the song is super catchy. I like it a lot. I really like... Like you talked about, Jonathan, the I Still Love Her mm-hmm. harmonies, that whole section mm-hmm. is great. Um, I did – I totally hear what you're saying, Christine, about it also not being super country. Like I hear a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think it's that sort of the picking that George yeah. does. Like yeah. it's, sort of, it's sort of cuspy. Like it could fall yeah. into a couple different categories of, you know, depending on your mood that day. I feel like um... – the birds could have done a great cover of this around like Sweetheart mm-hmm. of the Rodeo or like the Flying Burrito yes. Brothers could have done an amazing oh, cover of this. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. you totally could well, country that's... it up a little bit more mm-hmm. and like put it in that category easily. Yeah, that's exactly right. But, you know, ever since I realized there is that country aspect to the song, I've realized that a lot of the Beatles jingle jangle mid 60s sound that I really love, it 
it does have more of that tinge of country than say R&B. I mean, it's always mixed, mm -hmm. but I was thinking about a song like Another Girl. That definitely has that similar kind of country sensibility that isn't like you were saying Julia, it's not super overt, but it definitely the guitar sound, I think especially and the the rhythm uh guitar parts definitely and in this one obviously George's lead yeah. definitely bring that across mm -hmm. but it's funny because it hadn't really occurred to me I don't think of that country aspect like I said of the Beatles music as much as maybe I should have done but it definitely is popping out for me now more and more for sure for sure I think one of the things I I found myself really appreciating as as a guitarist on this song um, and one who primarily just plays rhythm guitar because I'm an atrocious lead guitar player. <laughs> um, John's rhythm guitar on this track at the top when he comes in is so percussive and so driving. I almost don't even need drums to come in because he's just dun, 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 dun. like his rhythm pattern is just so like percussive. It's really, really cool. Um, and mm -hmm. it's just one of those things where I'm always like, man, that guy could just play the simplest thing. He's just playing, you know, three chords, but like it's driving the whole song. And I think it's just such a cool vibe that he has on that track. So you're saying he's talented. <laughs> <laughs> he's a pretty good guitar player, that John Lennon. Not too shabby. That's skill. Yeah. He's all right. Yeah. He's all right. <laughs> so, so 161, how are we feeling? Hmm. Too high, too low, where it ought to be? What do you think? I don't know. I I feel like maybe around the correct spot. I, I have to know what's ahead of us. I'm sure there's always going to be something ahead of us, and I'm like, no, this should be way back. Yeah. We're, um, but I feel like maybe this one's somewhere correct-ish for me because um, I really like it. Yeah. But it's, I don't know that it's like mind-blowingly amazing like some of their stuff is. Sure. So, sure. Um, but I really like it. Like, I don't have any problem with it. Like you said. Yeah, it's. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel? I feel like you would probably have this one higher, Christine. Yeah, I mean, as you could hear from my story, going all the way back to, you know, first encounters with Beatles music. I would say it would have to be at least in the top 100 for me. I would mm -hmm. maybe even say top 75, maybe not top 50, but I tend to really like the Beatles music in the mid period from late 64 from this album to the early psychedelic stuff, you mm -hmm. know, going to Strawberry Fields Forever. That's my sweet spot for Beatles music. So that's why for me, it would probably be higher because a lot of the late Beatles music, say from Abbey Road and Let It Be, would be lower than I think for a lot of people. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Okay. I like where we're landing on this. We're kind of all different spots, with, but I like it. I think that's the whole point of the whole game. So. Yeah. Beautiful. No one is wrong. We've done it. We've ranked another one, folks. <laughs> well, um, I before we uh, let you go for the day, because uh, it is daytime where you are, um, do you have time for some rapid-fire questions? Yeah, sure. All right. Let's do this. Uh, your favorite Beatles song, and it can be of all time, it can be today, whatever works for you. Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> as I said, Eight Days a Week was my favorite as a child. 
as I got to know the Beatles uh, songbook or their discography, it's so hard, isn't it? I'm sure everybody says this, but it's so hard to choose. I would say towards the top for me would be something like I Feel Fine. I don't know that that would be number one, but I do love that. I do love also things like Ticket to Ride and You're Going to Lose That Girl, um, things we said today. But, you know, the other day I was talking with somebody about my favorite late Beatles song. And for me, the White Album is my favorite of the later work. Okay. So I would say my favorite late Beatles track would be Long, Long, Long. Ooh, true dark horse if there ever was one. (laughs) I really, it's sort of like that surprise of the George Harrison song at the end of that Beat Girl set list. So I'm coming in with another, (laughs) another George Harrison song, but I do. There's something about that song. Whenever I hear it now, I just get goosebumps. And I, it's just... There's something so spiritual and intense about that song that I just think is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, for some reason, it's just become a real favorite lately. I love it. I'm totally in on that. Um, your least favorite Beatles song? <laughs> <laughs> deep, well, deep sigh. As, as I said, the last couple of Beatles albums, even though their songs on both of them, let it be an Abbey Road that I enjoy. Um, I just, mm, I I have to say that I don't love Come Together the way a lot of people do. I find it really affected. Like Mm -hmm. John is just trying to be so cool and that just annoys me, I think, with that song. Um, The Long and Winding Road, cheesy as all hell. Yes. I I can't. Power to the I people just, on that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love Let It Be. And I think having heard Paul sing that, you know, seeing him live and hear him perform things like Hey Jude and Let It Be, which are, you know, anthemic songs, but I prefer hearing them live to hearing the recordings, mm-hmm. I have to say. So, yeah, the the later stuff I tend to not be so keen on and just like long 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 is probably my favorite on the white album rocky raccoon was probably my least favorite even though i loved that when i first heard it as a five-year-old yeah um but i guess you know i like the story songs when i was a little girl too like the continuing story of bungalow bill i like that a lot too but Mm -hmm. those are songs that i generally wouldn't listen to so much now okay okay fair enough what was the song that i kind of felt the same way about come together like you're just trying to be cool is it like what's the new mary jane yeah you're like you're just trying to be artsy fartsy yeah i'm like okay we get it you're like mr cool guy arts guy you do drugs. It's yeah, fine. like, okay, it's fine. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> That's how, yeah. I'm I'm with you on some of his later stuff. It's like, okay. <laughs> sure. You did drugs. We got it, John. Uh, your favorite Beatles album? Yeah, that's a tough one, too. Uh, as I said, I'm really a lover of the mid-period of the Beatles. And yet, growing up, we had all the American-issued albums. Yeah. So that makes it 
a bit confusing for me when I think about all those songs that I love from that time. They're not all on Rubber Soul, for instance. Yeah. Um, maybe if I was going for one of those American-issued albums, I would say Beatles 65 would be a real winner for me. Sure. But in terms of the original albums, um, it's really a tie, to be honest, between Rubber Soul and Revolver because there's a lot to love between those for sure. two. For so sure. I can't decide. And I do really love the White Album too, so it's hard. It's hard to make a decision. I'm totally on board. That's the one, yeah, that's the one late Beatles album that I just can't get enough of. But, you know, that mid-period is, is truly my favorite. For sure. For sure. What is your favorite memory associated with a Beatles song? Ooh. With the Beatles song or a mm-hmm. Beatles? Beatles in anything. Oh, yeah. Beatles in general. Yeah. What's your favorite Beatle memory? Since I'm so good at choosing just one thing, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> what are your favorite Beatle memories? There you go. <laughs> may, I, may I choose two? Absolutely. Yes, please. Uh, and they're both kind of related to my book in that they have to do with my connection with other women and the Beatles. And um i guess i'll do them in chronological order so my sister and i it wasn't just me who got into the beatles my story of beatles fandom is totally tied up with my relationship with my sister i just have one sister she's five years older we both got into the beatles in a big way when we were kids and it wasn't though until 2005 that we both saw paul mccartney together and that was at madison square garden Nice. And I was still living in Pittsburgh at the time, finishing up my PhD. I went into New York to meet her. She had seen Paul the night before, uh, and I couldn't make it for both the shows. So she went on Friday and Saturday. I went Saturday. She told me, okay, look, Christine, there's this period in the in the show, this bit of the set where Paul comes out just with an acoustic guitar and sings, you know, yesterday, I'll follow, uh, I'll be back, I'll follow the sun, all that stuff. And you and I, when it's quiet, we're going to shout out to Paul. So it's just like when we were, you know, eight and 13 years old. <laughs> <laughs> we decided that we were going to have our Beatlemania moment at this Paul McCartney concert and do the shout out about how much we loved Paul. So sure enough, sure enough, in this quiet moment, right after he finished one of those acoustic songs, my sister one, two, three. Paul, we really love you as loud as we possibly could. And from the stage, love you too, guys. Oh, how do you oh not just die inside? Oh my God. That's and amazing. the people behind us, this one guy, I swear I thought he was going to grab me like in that famous World War II is over <laughs> photo. I swear he was like, oh my God, oh my God, he talked to you. He really like strong New York accent. And he, you know, I, I swear he was going to grab and kiss me. Everybody oh. in our section was freaking out. Um, 
and you know how many years later is this and it's just such a special moment also just because it was that bond between me and my sister but Mm -hmm. to this day it remains you know she and I will talk about the Beatles she listens to Beatles podcasts she was the one who read the chapters as I was writing them to give me feedback you know she I dedicated the book to her and my husband because she's been on this journey with me for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So that that is an amazing Beatles story for me. But the other one um, I do have to share with you is when I was living in Hamburg for the year and doing research for my PhD, and I did come into contact with all these people from the Beatles story. I did interview Klaus Foreman, um, I met Gibson Kemp, interviewed him. He was the drummer who replaced Ringo when Ringo left to join the Beatles uh, in Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. And he had married um, Astrid Kirscher. They were married in the 60s. And Astrid, who, as you know, I write about in the book, Mm -hmm. she would be at his, he and his second wife run a British pub in Hamburg. And I would often be there and hang out and uh Ostrid would often be there hanging out because she still she was still good friends with Gibbo and his wife and so she would be there sometimes I would say hello I would chat with her but my going away party when I went back to the states was held there and all my good friends who I had made that year they sang me this Beatles medley in German <laughs> in German Aww. that's awesome so they take like bits of Ticket to Ride and different things, but have, you know, have it be about me going away. And it's so sweet. And at one point I looked and Ostrid was there that night and I looked over and she just was smiling. And I just, I thought like, oh, she must just think that's so strange on one hand and right. yet it's so normal, you know, to, <laughs> to see how, to see how the Beatles have really, um, impressed upon people's lives in these different ways Mm -hmm. and obviously she couldn't have known that when she first befriended the Beatles you know what they would become they were just her friends you know Mm -hmm. and all these years later she's seen the the ripple effects you know of of this phenomenon what these people created and how they've touched so many people's lives so that was a special moment as well. Yeah. So I hope you don't mind no, that's that I shared fantastic. both of them with you. No, they were both that great. Is fantastic. I love it. I, I also I also am I've always been super impressed by Astrid's lack of cashing in on her association with the Beatles. Like it ne- there are people who did things with far less weight in their story uh that, you know, have held on for dear life for, you know, 60 years almost and it seemed like she always respected that like they're just her friends and she took photos of them and it worked out really well for them and that's great uh right and that always just seemed like such a admirable way to be you know like it just i always had like a ton of like admiration and respect for that for her yeah same same it's you know when people talk about Jane Asher being silent about her relationship with Paul McCartney or Ostrid, you know, just, um, you know, not, not spilling at all, you know, just saying what she wanted to say. I, I also have just so much respect for both of them mm-hmm. uh, to just, 
you know, say this was part of my life. It was really special, but, you know, I don't need to share it all with you. This yeah. is, mm-hmm. you know, private. Some of it is very private for me. So, yeah. yeah. And also, and I think, but, you, shoot. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I, and I, I think you mentioned it in the book that, you know, when people talk about photographers associated with the Beatles, her name is always like low on the totem pole of what comes up, which is, you know, surprising because their image is, you know, she create, like you said, she creates that, you know, she's there, they're, they're her, her image muse. She creates the blueprint for what they become. And she's almost never the first photographer that people, Oh, beautiful photographer, blah, blah, blah. Uh, It's never her, you know, which I always find really, really odd. Yeah, agree, agree, which is, you know, again, part of why I wanted to write this book. It's right. those women's stories and the fact that those stories and those experiences haven't been front and center in this cultural history was a big reason for why I wanted to write this book. So I, I, I'm hoping that from now on, you know, that won't be so much the case that people will think of men and women's experiences in the Beatles story and the fandom mm-hmm. on equal terms, you know, for sure. For sure. Well, the book is a women's history of the Beatles. Where can our listeners check that book out and get themselves a copy? Sure. Amazon has it. Bloomsbury, the publisher. Also, you can find it there and pretty much any online booksellers. I do need to let folks know that only the hard copy or the hardcover is available right now, but the paperback will be coming out next year. Lovely. As is the case with many academic publishers. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And y'all, it's such a great book. It's, it's from so many different perspectives of the women of the Beatles story. It's you have the the original fans and then you have different generations of fans to come and then you have the girlfriends and wives and then you have all of the women that became musicians because of the Beatles and became music writers because of the Beatles. I mean it's just it's talks about so many people and how the Beatles have impacted their lives and it's it's chock full of wonderful stories about wonderful people so go read it because it's joyful and wonderful and you'll enjoy it (laughs) if you like the Beatles and you like women (laughs) you'll love it (laughs) and what about what about your other books are where what are the best places I know you've written a few others Uh, I don't have the titles in front of me right now I'm sorry I apologize for that okay so um the first book I wrote came out of my PhD work for instance when I was in Hamburg so even though it's not about the Beatles per se they do make some appearances in it and that's called We Are the Mods Mm -hmm. and um a transnational history of the youth subcultures. So it basically tracks mod culture from the 60s to uh, the early 2000s. It came out in 2009. So that's that's around uh, also through Amazon and the usual places. And then I edited a book called Lost Histories of Youth Culture. And that's just um, spanning different countries, different time periods, looking at things to do with music, but not necessarily. So that's a little bit more uh, diverse in terms of the content. But yeah, and if people want to get in touch with me, um, Twitter is probably the best. Yeah, I'm reserving Twitter for sort of the professional 
social media <laughs> space. Um, and as you know, that's how we connect. That's how we hooked up, yeah. Through Twitter. So, um, yeah, it's funny. I'm kind of new to Twitter, but I'm really loving it. I yeah. It's a lot of fun, to be honest. Nice. It um, is. It is. Yeah. And like you said, the Beatles community through spaces like that, you can really see how dynamic and how vivid it is and also how multi-generational it is, which is really cool. For sure. Mm -hmm. I, Julia and I have had personal Twitters for God, who knows, 10 years, maybe longer, way too too long. long. (laughs) Um, And when we first started the, the, the podcast, I was really resistant to starting a Twitter for it. I was like, I don't, I don't even want to have my own Twitter anymore, let alone a second Twitter account. Do I really need to do this? And then finally I gave in, must have been 10 episodes in. And by the, you know, when I finally did it and just kind of like gave into it, oh my God, I met so many great people. And like, it just opened up so many doors to like this wonderful community that we're so happy to be a part of now. So Mm. glad we're in the Twitter verse. That's how we stumbled upon you. Um, so it's been an absolute blast it's uh, like, to it's do like it. It's like you found all like the nice Beatles community. Yes. Because <laughs> yeah. we all know there's yeah. the not nice There Beatles are some community. that are not very friendly. <laughs> yes. But it's like you, you managed to find all like the nice people, which is great. I'm like, okay, I can do this. Like, I'm not a Beatles fan like Jonathan is. So like, if there's any part of this that turns me off, I'm just like, no, I'm out. I don't want to deal with these people. But everyone's been really nice so far, so I haven't had to quit yet. So thank you. Uh, That's great. No, because it's – I love um, your format that both of you are co-hosting it. It's it's really fun. I enjoy listening to it. So obviously it's been fun to also – be invited to be a guest so thanks again well thank you what's what's next what's coming up next for you that's a good question (laughs) (laughs) i feel like um there's been so much energy obviously poured into this as is always the case when somebody takes on a big project like writing a book Mm -hmm. um to be honest i i really want to do something focused on generation x because i feel that we're the forgotten generation a lot of the time. And I think the reason maybe a lot of us uh, are into 60s culture is because it was so all around us when we were children and and teenagers even. Um, I like to think of that line from Douglas Copeland's Generation X where he talks about legislated nostalgia around the 60s you know that so many people who were not part of the 60s generation felt like they were because it was just everywhere and even when I think about all the bands that I followed in the late 80s and through the 90s the ones that I loved the most always had a kind of 60s Beatlesque sound to them Mm -hmm. so so I'm I am interested in maybe going into a project where I look a bit more closely at the Gen X pop culture experience. Yeah. Cool. So that's very interesting. That's looking like a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I'd nice. Read that. <laughs> that sounds good. I'm, I'm in. in. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> you have one purchase at least. <laughs> first, first pre-order is done. Just Venmo or some money. We're in. Well, Dr. Christine, Feldman Barrett, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and hanging out with us. Uh, and uh, our, our everybody, go out and, and read her book. 
It's really good. We highly recommend it. It's really good. That's the best recommendation. That's that's, that's how I do it. It's really good. Trust me. Thanks, you guys. Thank Thanks you. So Wonderful. Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett, everybody. What a ball. How fun. So fun. Gang, I can't recommend this book uh, enough to you. Um, Julia and I both read it uh, at different times, and then we would like... Where are you? I'm on page 110. I'm on 108, 105. Let's talk. And we would talk about different parts. So much fun. Um, highly recommended because it's, like we've kind of said, it's a great alternate view at a story that has been told from the same perspective a million other times. Um, and it's really, really cool. One of the things that I really enjoy about our show is I feel that we're collecting individuals' relationships with the Beatles. And that's what... Christine's book really focuses on. Um, So it's really a a great read. Highly, highly recommended. Uh, So, folks, what do you guys think? Folks, what do y'all think about I Don't Want to Spoil the Party at 161? Am I too high? Am I too low? Or just like Baby Bear's Porridge, are we just right? (laughs) I love doing that to you every week, my love. He's, like, rubbing my shoulder right now. What do you think, baby? So I don't punch him. (laughs) It's, It's true. Um, let us know what y'all think uh, wherever you're following us on the social medias on Facebook we're at Ranking the Beatles on Twitter we're at Ranking Beatles and on Instagram we're at Ranking the Beatles that's right so let did us did I get it right? I think you did okay <laughs> I hope you did uh, we'll patch it in if it's wrong you did fine <laughs> um, yeah let us know what you think uh, if you're enjoying the show please leave us a five star review or however many stars it allows you to leave on your podcast listening source of choice uh, and tell a friend we're having a good old time here at Rankin the Beatles we would love to uh, have them hang out with us as well if your friends listen then you can be like Jonathan and I when we read Dr. Feldman Barrett's book and be like oh where are you in the show oh we gotta talk about this you yeah. can be just like us did you hear it when Jonathan totally said something stupid and Julia <laughs> just was like oh god it's so dumb <laughs> He made the porridge joke again. Oh, my God. She must be in the most miserable marriage. <laughs> That's not true. No. You're a happy camper. I am. Yeah. It's fine. Let's wrap it up. All right, gang. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, please remember, you can find all things Ranking the Beatles related at rankingthebeatles.com. So that's all we got for this week. So until next time, have a good one. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Julia. This has been Ranking the Beatles. Adios. Bye, y'all.